Like, I'm the greatest rapper. I'm gonna rap the alphabet. Isn't that <laughs> cool? Oof. That's great, Mr. Hammer. Sit yeah, down. Exactly. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I am your host, Sean Hartman, joined by my regular co-host, former public access, Hari Krishna, TV evangelist, Jeremy Ruggles. Ohm, everyone. Ohm. And regional Connect Four strategy specialist, Peter Cook. You have to connect four. And we have a special guest with us this evening, 1-800-CARS-FOR-KIDS apologist, Eric Nervous, a.k.a. Eric Hart. They just needed the booster seats, and it would have worked perfectly. Fair. Uh, before we get started, Eric, you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself, some of your other side hobbies, things people might have recognized you from? Yes, well, I am currently, well, not currently, we need a practice spot, but my band is playing out amongst the living what's the name of that band on flyers it'll usually be eric nervous and the beta blockers most of my records are by myself but our latest i say the latest it came out in january and it's still it's going to be on vinyl february of 2020 finally but it was first record with the band and hopefully first of many and i play music and shout and record it and been trying to do so for other people but it's been slow uphill battle to get people to not do it themselves and uh eric and i were also co-workers at one point in time at a uh, local record store that shall continue to not be named even though we've referenced it almost every episode <laughs> tough when there's two record stores in town mm. sputnik records <laughs> wow so, Eric, would you consider yourself a record collector? Yes. Okay. I lean very much towards the loud and fast and white spectrum of music, but there are some branching out here and there. This is, I have a soft spot for Casey Kasem, top 80s top hits. I'm fumbling, fumbling <laughs> this one up, boys. That's Thank fine. you for having That's me. Fine. We'll clean it up in post. <laughs> Yes, I do enjoy music, Sean. <laughs> and uh, I, I would say that you uh, know your way around a bargain bin. Yes, I am a cheap motherfucker. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's hey, not you, what I meant. but <laughs> I, I just want to say I, you introduced me to the, uh, well, Kurt McConney was playing it, but you were the first person to tell me about the Village People's Food Fight. Yes, a classic. Yes. Mm. <laughs> Essential. Uh, yeah, along that lines, I've been, a lot of my DJ sets, I always try to work in Sean Cassidy's cover of Rebel Rebel from his new wave album. It's yeah. Great. Yeah, I've had a number of conversations with you where I walked away with some interesting bargain bin knowledge. And you brought an interesting record today. Yeah, so I'm on the subject of Casey Kasem hits, Tony Basil's Word of Mouth, the home of the ever-popular Mickey. Hmm. As in, Mickey, Mickey, you're so fine. He is so fine, he blows my mind. Hey, Mickey. Hey. 
Hey. Hey, Mickey. <laughs> I mentioned this not on the podcast. So I don't know why I'm saying that I mentioned this. <laughs> when <laughs> a friend of mine, when we were in high school, was on the uh, radio station at the uh, school and he had played that song, but didn't somehow didn't know the artist and credited it to the cheerleaders because famously the Tony Basil had a, uh, the cheerleaders in the uh, video. She was dressed as one and there was a whole slew of them. Correct. Yes. Well, credited on the back is stomping on Mickey Dorsey high cheerleaders classes of 80 and 81. Oh, well maybe my friend was right. Maybe he knew something I didn't. Dang. <laughs> Here I am 23 years later. Ashamed. It sounds like someone game. didn't do their research on this episode. <laughs> whoa. Yeah, this is whoa, not whoa. his episode to do the research, Sean. True. And I did almost no research on this episode either, so <laughs> I hadn't actually listened to this record at all before Eric suggested it, and I dove in a little bit, listened to most of the tracks, and was honestly pretty impressed with some of it. Mm-hmm. It is a little all over the place. Yes. Some of the songs are great. Some of the songs Well, there's are a not very great. good reason for the quality gap between some of them, if you know looking to the liner notes on backing bands and such. Yeah, that was something I was kind of picking up on right away. If you want to dive into some of that a little bit, Eric. Well, it is a very asterisk-heavy track list. There's, from what I can gather, three different recording sessions. Every song has a different backing band, and three of them feature names such as Jerry Casale and Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo, Mm -hmm. who... Tony Basil was a, still is a world-renowned choreographer for movies, music videos, what have you. She's worked for Quentin Tarantino, been had a strong and steady career since the mid-60s with dance as her main thing. In the 80s, her discography of all of two albums seems almost a fluke related with Mickey becoming a number one hit. But that, she was, that's her only hit, right? She had a minor one, the follow-up off of this record. I don't I don't even know what it is. I think it was shopping from A to Z, which I'm sure will be a lengthy discussion on this at some point. But then she had a follow-up, Nobody was a single that failed to chart, and then she had a very minor hit on her second album, and that was the end of her producing music. Sure. I somehow knew before you selected this, I knew that she was a choreographer, Primarily, maybe I saw her on VH1, Where Are They Now or something, but I had never really dove in beyond the hit and I was pleasantly surprised with some of the tracks. And yeah, I was a little inconsistent with what I heard, but the ones that I liked, I really liked. Let's let's go ahead and hear something off this album. What, what track you want to play for us, Eric? Uh, we all know Mickey, so let's not do that. Should we fine. start with shopping? Let's start with shopping. <laughs> it's right. a weird place to start. Yes, it's... It's very easy to divide this record up into three distinct acts, I guess you could call. Good girl shop, bad girl shop 
Should, should we let her get through the whole alphabet? Never mind. <laughs> we should have let her get through the whole alphabet, but we can't play the whole song. We can't do that. We don't do that. We don't want to bore our listeners. We were in a tight ass ship there on is, this podcast. There's no boring them with the shopping song. True. But I'm left baffled, and I'm not sure if you can actually answer this or not. But a lot of this album felt so dipped in like Reagan era consumerism. And I can't tell if it's meant sarcastically at all or if there's like some cynicism to it or if it's being almost assuredly with the Devo connection. <laughs> their their whole shtick was consumerism gone mad, the evolution of spuds. Yes. So almost assuredly there's a tongue in cheek to the sheer eighties of it. Okay. Yeah, that was I wasn't sure like what the frame of reference was for this if this is meant to be yeah, like I said. Like There's a, a similar theme video. It's very art school, but it's a it was like a one off music video thing by a collective called like Twin Art, but it's called Instant That and Instant This, Instant That. That's all it's much more just going through day to day and everything's a can, everything's we put on this radio, da da da. And it's the same. I think it's a very satirically covered sort of along those lines of commentary. It's just sugar coated to the nth degree. Yeah. In terms of being. It's like in Repo Man, which is from roughly the same time period where everything's generically labeled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going back to your question though, Jeremy, it is kind of interesting how it has that feel of satire and like a more extreme version of what was going on in that culture, but it's so close to the culture already that it, it feels like you're not entirely sure if this is just part of how over the top pop culture was, or if it's making fun of it. Yeah. I wasn't sure if this was just like a high watermark of like, (laughs) this is like (laughs) as crazy as it got. Yeah. Yeah. Do any of you know who Shirley Ellis is, the singer, the, the name game or the oh, clapping yeah, yeah, yeah. song? It yeah. reminded me of an updated version oh, yeah. of something she would do. Divine could rock the hell out of this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. And the, it was the same with the artwork and the music videos and her makeup and mannerisms. It's all just slightly more exaggerated than it would normally be if, if this was a serious attempt at pop culture. But it still fits in so well. It's amazing. It's also good to note that this song is not present on the UK version of this. Is We're talking about the Virgin uh, Chrysalis Pressing, which is the US, which features shopping from A to Z and takes off. I believe the song's called Hanging On. Hanging it's, Around. Hanging Around. I was thinking yeah. it was going to be a Stranglers cover. <laughs> no. Well, yeah. No. It's diff- totally different sequencing. And it's got that song. So, Eric, how did you come across this record? What made you pick this one up? I like Devo. And this is, it's got, uh, this is the only really officially recorded version of a song called Space Girl. It's on a, their early demo compilation called Hardcore Space Girl Blues, where it's a much more lo fi, demented version. But this is gussied up to the Uber Reagan 82 version with Tony Basil doing vocals and nice chorus guitars but it's it's really a stellar song in this form those two uh collections hardcore volume one and two are actually my favorite devo oh yeah it's yeah 
Do you want to play that track? Yeah, that would be good. during the music break there oh that's what that was that's <laughs> the thing that was coming out of my mouth it was like music because of my oh. angelic voice but it wasn't the music well the music was also playing but my voice was also making sounds and we were discussing with those sounds where did the music that was also playing come from i'm lost <laughs> I think more or less like what in the world like who is this lady and why is she making music like this that uh, particular oh I'm sorry, sorry. no go ahead go ahead that, that particular track for some reason when you suggested this you know and I knew Mickey the hit I was also almost expecting to go in and find that the rest of the record was like a Lizzie Mercier de Clue album mm-hmm. when she did oh Arthur, yeah that Arthur Brown's fire, fire yeah, yeah. Some of the tracks weren't quite quite there. They were more pop, but then I heard her doing that, and I was like, oh, that's kind of getting into that territory. Mm-hmm. I also noticed when I was listening to it, there's music videos for every single song on the album. Yes, and I believe the main genesis of this whole music, because this is really, this record and the one after it that came out a year later are her only real forays into making music herself. And I believe it was the emergence of the grand old VHS that really spurred it as an opportunity to create full media experiences between music and video and being a dancer by trade since childhood when, yeah, and as Peter brought up, she was nearly 40 when this record came out and she already had a very long and successful career 
before she became a number one charting recording artist that she wanted to make music videos as those are all of her age with MTV coming out and all that. So she decided to just jump headfirst into it and came out ahead with one of them. So the music was kind of made with the visual in mind of the music. That's interesting. There's an ad on the back of the jacket for the VHS, right? Yes, in full, motion on record, music on video, for complete Tony Basil experience, get it on (laughs) video cassettes. Conceived, directed, choreographed, and edited by Tony Basil. I wonder if the VHS is worth more than the record. (laughs) Almost assuredly. (laughs) I think this goes for about two or three bucks medium value. Yeah, Yeah. this is in bargain bins all over the place. And yeah, part of why I never really listened to it was it just didn't seem like something I would be into. It it seems like that weird early eighties mall culture, like the Tiffany records and that just yeah. Debbie Gibson. <laughs> well getting into stuff. the whole if and you would continue thinking that as soon as you put the song put the record on through the first three tracks. Yeah. On the US edition at least, because you've got Mickey which oh boy mickey and then going into a cover of rock on which can only be described as fort the fortnite dance song with lyrics and instrumentation and the shop in a to z which we heard then all of a sudden you got a problem a cover of pity you a devo song off their that newest album new traditionalists and the be stiff into another great song nobody which is Another theme that comes through this record, which is, oh boy, do I want to be Pat Benatar. <laughs> I noticed that at times. <laughs> this kind of goes into a, a quintessential variety of bargain bin digs, though, that we haven't really explored on this podcast much yet. I think we've, we've gone for a lot of records that we're really into. We've listened to a lot of records so far that we're really into from start to finish. That seemed like a complete package. But there's a lot of great records out there that only half the album is good. But that half of the album is good enough to still pick it up or at least to be of interest and maybe play a few songs, put it on a mixtape, DJ with it. And this album is a perfect example. It's something that you may never have picked up just by looking at it. And also, if you've seen it a million times, you can't help but think this can't be good. But once you do the research and see the association, the musicians that are on it, there's, there's some really interesting material around there. Yeah, I think the most interesting is the song Little Red Book, which is... Seems like Tony Basil trying to make a Devo song without any of the members of Devo involved, but it's just so weird and quirky. Yeah, and that's a Burt Bacharach song that Love did mm-hmm. back in the 60s. It's a good version of it. Yeah, the Feelies do a really good... There's like a live bootleg of the oh, Feelies really? at like Maxwell's or CBGB's, and they do a really good Lord book. Nice. Are we going to hear that song, Jeremy? Yeah, let's hear that song. Oh, if cool. I don't destroy this record yeah i saw that flip it i don't know if eric saw that or not. i don't know if i could ever get another copy of this (laughs) you'll have to go shopping from a to z oh my god
something I was mentioning to the crew here while we were listening to that is that I read somewhere that Sid Barrett was trying to figure out the riff to the love version of that song and ended up coming up with the interstellar overdrive riff as a result of that. And it does that kind of descending melody. Totally. You said that's a Burt Bacharach song? I think it's, initially? yeah, is it Hal David, Burt Bacharach? Was that the songwriting team? Yeah, I don't I don't think I've ever heard an earlier version than Love's version of it. Yeah, that's the only version I'm familiar with. And I mentioned that the Love version is one of the like dirtier, heavier songs in the Love canon as it is. So this version is obviously very different than that, but still has more of a punk edge to it than a lot of the other stuff on the record. Just funny that that all came from a Burt Bacharach song. <laughs> Yeah, this was, I think, maybe my favorite of the songs from this album. Mm-hmm. Got the weirdest elements to it as well, probably. Yeah. Eric, you would said that there's the Devo connection with this. How did that come about? Yeah, so Tony Basil was dating Jerry Casale, the bass player of Devo at the time, who was also the most into the whole visual theatrical element of it, which makes sense that these two would sort of bond over that sort of thing. Cool. Yeah, I think the pairing is awesome. It fits really well. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I think it definitely influenced the sound of other tracks on the album and is probably the main reason why this album is is worth listening to. It could have been a complete throwaway yes. experiment aside from that. Well, most of the song, I think there's two or three songs on here that were written for the record. Everything else is a cover. Mickey is a cover of a song called Kitty from that she added the whole cheerleader riff, I guess you would call it, too. Interesting. <laughs> and then Rock On's a cover. Shopping A to Z's, unoriginal, good for her. And then, yeah. But still kind of a cover of the alphabet. I also want to know, she couldn't come up with anything for X. They just no. say nothing. Xylitol. Yeah. But that wasn't around at that time. Welcome to the segment where Peter thinks up words, starting with the letter X. Go. <laughs> Xerox. Keep going. Xylophone. Uh-huh. What else? Xanax. Okay. You got okay. two more. You got two more in you. Uh, <laughs> uh, Maybe a soundtrack album featuring electric light orchestra. Xanadu? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> That's your point of reference for Xanadu? Yeah. Why not? Oh, okay. Cool. This is uh, a music podcast. Uh, z- xenochronology? I don't know. Oh, no. <laughs> Xenomorph. Great. Good job. Peter passes. Okay. <laughs> Peter passes again. Yeah. Flying colors. Did his alphabet research for the Tony Basil Da-dun-dun. podcast episode. <laughs> Xenophobic. Hey, Ooh. with the save. So, Eric, as we mentioned before, you know your way around a bargain bin. Yes. Well, not just because you're cheap, but I'd say you're an avid record collector, an experienced record collector. You have any any hot tips for other people? trying to get out there and find their own. I'd buy that for a dollar selection, some hidden gems. I I would say we were talking earlier about this whole era and we brought up the village people, how just how like new wave threw everything into with a lot of really, it might not be good, but it'll at least be interesting if you can find a good mismatching between name and image. Like the Sean, there's a Sean Cassidy new wave record. I think it's called Wasp where he's got new romantic eye paint and there's a bug poorly superimposed and it's it's um, frankly amazing and it is so obvious it's like you need to be devo Sean listen Sean <laughs> whip it's popular we need to, you need to do whip it Sean 
So, uh, okay, okay, I'll do Rebel Rebel and we'll have 80s singers and orchestra hits. <laughs> There's also all the Arthur Fiedler big band records where he was trying to, you know, reconnect with the youth. So you mm-hmm. had Saturday Night Fiedler. And I think there's one where he's on a motorcycle and just rapping Red Rodney. Yeah, totally. All those oh, weird geez. crossovers. Like, let's, we still got this guy on our contract. Let's see if we can squeeze half a hit out of him and make a few bucks before he dies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, image versus name mismatch. That's yes, it's one. always always good for at least a good something to drink to and have a laugh. And it is Beautiful. perfect if you're doing a short DJ set to throw yeah. in those bizarre tracks that everybody's in the company like, what the hell is this? I've, <laughs> what is, what are you subjecting us to? It's worth it for that experience. Right. Yeah. And the 80s were fertile with that. Mm-hmm. And I think the digital landscape that came into play there was really allowed a lot of great and terrible things to be birthed out. <laughs> so when when you're bargain bin shopping eric how often do you just grab something because it looks interesting or do you look stuff up on the phone and try and give it a sample before you make the purchase if there isn't like a sample turntable available a station listening station exactly there was fun time when we were on tour in upstate new york there was trying to do that and there was some guy just hogging it for probably 40 minutes just listening to two or three records just going through but yeah yeah a lot of bargain bin stuff is you're paying a dollar or two for one good song that's compilation old you know radio station compilations or weird recorded live at the stogie's big bar or something <laughs> you'll get a there'll be a good mixtape joke end of side track a lot of times it's like the simpler the label art the more interesting it'll be i found like old Soul labels will generally barely have anything besides words, and if you're lucky, a horizontal line. <laughs> it also pays to make sure nothing is distributed by any other label. Like it's just from Butte, Montana, or somewhere, and not distributed by X Records in New York City, New York. Yeah, then you're getting the whole private press world, which is mm-hmm. a whole other area of record digging. Like you were saying, some of it is just bizarre and worth it for in, to be interesting and sometimes it is amazing forward thinking made entirely without a producer worrying about commercial aspects to it and there's and you can find a lot of cool stuff like that in bargain bins that mm-hmm. everybody else passes by because it doesn't jump out at you as a name you recognize or artwork that even looks cool sometimes it's worth taking a chance especially if there's a listening station Sean, do you feel, or Eric or Jeremy, do you feel that in a small way the internet has destroyed some of that because now people can look up the value of some of those previously records that you would have just had no idea what it was? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, Mm -hmm. definitely. When I first started record collecting, it was pre-smartphone, but at the same time, I when I was less experienced and looking for more common stuff, I wasn't really taking chances on weird things. And by the time I got to the point in record collecting where I was looking for more obscure items or things I'd never heard of. Yeah. It had gotten to the point where anybody can be a seller on Discogs and eBay. And there's a lot more people buying stuff to try and flip it. A lot more people know what they're looking for because of the online retail and because of the easier access to, old school, more experienced DJs and record collectors who are talking about these private press records that are amazing and the value just keeps going up and everybody knows what they're looking for now. 
So I would imagine without really having a good firsthand experience of, you know, the golden age of being able to find this kind of stuff that, yeah, it is much harder now. Yeah, just take a random one like Dave Bixby, uh, Quetzalcoatl. I'm sure there was a time where you could have found that for 50 cents somewhere that had no idea what it was. Yeah. So the the record you're referencing is a Grand Rapids private press psych album that is worth hundreds or sometimes four figures, depending on the condition. And I would say, though, that the private press realm that we're talking about is still one of the easiest areas of music to be able to find something rare, especially stuff that doesn't look cool right away, like what we were talking about. And for those that aren't aware, the term private press just means someone who self-released an album and didn't go through any kind of major label affiliation to make it. Yeah, and conversely, just because it's private press doesn't mean it's worth anything. Like Definitely not. Those private press things only become valuable when, like you said, some type of influencer or there's a biopic about the artist and all of a sudden everybody has always loved Towns Van Sant. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's still a lot of interesting private press things. You just have to find them. The hunt's a little harder, but... Uh, You're going to find a lot of Jesus music. Yeah. <laughs> you just got to find the acid damage, Jesus. Yes. Music, and then you've struck gold. Which Dave Bixby would be. Exactly. Keep on digging. Mm-hmm. Listen to stuff that looks like it sucks. And, you know, 99% of it will suck. But if you keep going at it, then you're going to find some amazing records. Yeah. Thanks for bringing this Tony Basil that I, I would have never given the time of day because I know the Mickey song and I would have been like, nah. Yeah, I'm not gonna waste my time listening to this. So Same. now both ourselves and our listeners can be the life of the party when they can drop some knowledge on Tony Basil B sides. Mm-hmm. Go find this record for a dollar. All right, this has been I'd buy that for a dollar, mm-hmm. and my name is Jeremy. My name is Peter. I'm Sean Hartman. E for Eric. <laughs> Eric, is there a song you'd like to go out on here? Uh, you got a problem's good. All right, thank y'all. That concludes yet another fantastic episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Please like us on the internet, through the Facebook, through the Instagram, through the non-Twitter. We don't have a Twitter, do we? No. Okay. You can also, I've been told by the Supreme Court of the United States, that money is also speech. So if you want to talk to us like a corporation would real dirty like hit us on the patreon i'd buy that podcast you can talk to us clean like on i buy that podcast at gmail.com or if you personally address it to sean you are allowed to talk dirty in that email too please like us follow us tell your friends tell your grandma she used to listen to vinyls i bet bye You've got to stop saying finals, oh my god! (laughs)